Let's start by being honest with ourselves. As a nation, for decades, we were perfectly happy to write off whole neighborhoods, whole cities, whole generations of young men and women. As long as it was an inner city problem, an urban problem, which is to say, a black people problem, a brown people problem. Send them to prison, into a system from which they'll never return. Maybe now, now that it's really come home to roost, now that it's the high school quarterback, your next door neighbor, your son, your daughter, now that grandma's as likely to be a junkie as anybody else, we'll accept that there has never been a real war on drugs. War on drugs implies an us versus them. And all over this part of America, people are learning there is no them. There is only us. And we're going to have to figure this out together. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear a word from Professor Angela Davis. Mass incarceration. Perhaps I'll begin by saying that many, many years ago, over 40 years ago, when I was in jail myself, for being involved in campaigns to free political prisoners, George Jackson, the Soledad Brothers, the members of the Black Panther Party, Lolita Lagrosian and the Puerto Rican Nationalists, Los Siete de la Raza. Many of us began to realize that it was not simply a question of political repression, but it was not simply a question of political repression directed against specific individuals, but the entire institution of the prison was an institution of repression, fueled by racism. And therefore, while we called for the freedom of political prisoners, we began to recognize that we had to challenge the institutionalization of racism and violence through the prison system. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a word from the esteemed professor and political activist, Angela Davis. Hello, Baltimore. My name is Tyrone Bose, owner of BBPW Heating and Cooling, and welcome to our show, called Tyrone Show. And I'm here with my millennial co-host, my African-American history and cultural gangsters, Leroy Myers, graduate student and teaching assistant at the University of Oklahoma. His area of study is the dynamics of African-American and Native American history. Say hello, Leroy. Hi, hey, how's everyone doing? And my other millennial, Zachary Leacock, social media entrepreneur. Good afternoon, Baltimore. How's everything going? Who majored in audio production, radio, TV, and film at Howard University. He is a socially conscious vegan and a producer of the Channel 10 Cop podcast, featuring interviews with pioneering rap artists. Okay, hello, Baltimore. I hope that uh, everybody had a happy Mother's Day and you had a chance to uh, visit your mom and all that, if she's still with us. You know, and, you know. I hope everybody got a chance to visit their mother. Um, I certainly did, and uh, it was a very enjoyable experience. And speaking of Mother's Day, we're going to be talking about some, some powerful sisters today. Uh, one of them being Angela Davis, who you just heard. She, um, Angela Davis was a professor uh, at uh, the uh, University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, she was also uh, an activist. You know, she got to start by being an activist and an associate of the Black Panther movement. Um, she actually did time in jail, by the way. So she, I'm pretty sure she can speak effectively on mass incarceration. She, she actually founded an organization called um, uh, uh, Critical, um, uh, what is it? It was called Critical Justice. 
Um, and what it is, uh, I'm sorry, Critical Resistance. And what it is is an organization bent on um, um, the abolishing the prison industrial complex, which has been a network that has been um, kind of, you know, imprisoning our people for, you know, for for minor offenses and and led to mass incarceration after, uh, you know, the war on drugs was initiated the second time around by the Reagan administration in the uh, 80s. So we they're saying that one in three blacks are going to um, do time in jail before uh, they die. And it is very important that we spend time um, trying to consider alternatives because when you look at your family you don't want through one i know if you don't care about anybody else you don't want one three of the males in your family to be in jail so that you know being the case we definitely need to do something about this uh system of mass incarceration we need to find out what the root cause of it is the source and we need to uh we we need to um um uh solve it at, at the root otherwise it's going to continue um by the way, Angela Davis, she uh, she was actually on trial for her life in California. Um, the the behind uh, somebody taking a gun into a courtroom and, and uh, taking some hostages to try to free the Soul Dad brothers, another piece of African American history, um, who were on trial for um, killing a prison guard who killed three black prisoners. So uh, they tried to implicate Angela Davis by saying that the guns belonged to her, even though she was not there and she didn't do anything. And, and actually, there was there were thousands of people that actually um, came out and supported Angela Davis, probably millions, because there were like 300 committees in the United States at that time that were trying the, the free Angela Davis movement. 300 committees in the United States and 70 and like 70, 67 in foreign lands. People, she had international claim. People from all the world saw what was going on, and they actually protested her being um, her being uh, imprisoned and. Uh, Ronald Reagan was governor of California at the time, so you got to see what she was up against. The president of the United States, Richard Nixon, when she was captured, because she went on land for a while, and people were hiding her in their houses and stuff like that. But when she was captured, she was made public enemy number one, by the way. When she was captured, uh, Richard Nixon even said, I'm glad, I'm grateful that the FBI captured the terrorist Angela Davis. And actually, before all this went down, she was, she was a professor at uh, the University of California before all this went down, and then Governor Reagan actually had her, her fired. Um, from her job as a professor because of some of the things she would say before this even went down. So <laughs> she already had a reputation. And, and uh, in California, you when you were in trial for murder, you were in trial for your life. And, and to this day, there's still 700 uh, people on death row in California, San Quentin. So don't don't think, you know, they they their death row was nothing like the one up in Maryland. You know, Maryland's death row was like a joke compared to Texas and, and places like California. You know, you might have three people on death row and everybody's protesting or whatever. And, but there, you got 700, nobody thinks anything about it. 700 uh, people on death row. I'm sorry, Zach. Um, yes, and, you know, it uh, definitely speaks to a lot of issues, um, you know, just speaking about the death row issue, because um, as we speak about so frequently, um, you know, we're arrested disproportionately for uh, various crimes when um, they are you know, committed in the same rates um, across, you know, various races, you know, black people and white people do the crime at the same rate, but we get arrested for uh, the same crimes at a, a much higher rate. And then even when you look at death row, it's like how many of us um, are being targeted and, you know, people are losing their lives um, at a disproportionate rate um, than, you know, white people. Not to say that people who don't do heinous crimes shouldn't get, you know, proper punishment. But, you know, when that punishment is only levied against one group of people, it makes you look at the system as a whole and what needs to change. And the evidence also, you know, if I, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm for people getting punished. If, if you kill somebody, I think you should be punished. Definitely. Definitely should be punished, but in a lot of cases, 
these murders, you know, when they close these murders, they don't even always have concrete evidence. Sometimes it's circumstantial and people being sent to death row based on circumstantial evidence. And the Innocence Project has actually freed people from death row. Right. About 400, some, some people, more people from death row who were convicted, you know, by the criminal justice system that, that DNA evidence proved they weren't even at the scene of the crime. So we got to be careful, you know, when we say, well, if they got on death row, they must have did it. That's not always the case. So we got to be careful and examine our, you know, do a little research and, and, and do our correct analysis before we say such things. Uh, Leroy? Uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to a Angela Davis's life, uh, it's really it's highly reflective of um, a lot of what we have been talking about uh, on this show, especially the term prison industrial complex, which uh, which. Uh, is the which which is derived from Angela Davis's work um, a lot of it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, by the way, they have an article in, in Sun Paper uh, when when we're actually uh, discussing uh, what happens when a um, when a parent goes to prison. Now, there's there's more than just you know that the um, the adults are affected. There's unintended consequences behind mass incarceration, which include the, that the children suffer. So you have a situation where you know, the uh, the children who are already living in poverty are a lot of times pushed further into poverty by the fact that they're one of the parents is out of the home, and when he or she returns, they're not able to get, you know, find work because you do time on the inside and time on the outside in a lot of cases as a result of this mass incarceration. That's why we consider it very serious. A lot of our, 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 lot of our leaders have been ignoring it, but, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's I think, I don't think it gets the, um, the attention it deserves. And uh, Dr. King once said, by the way, he once said, that um, what's the use of when he's later on in his life when he changed to an economic focus as opposed to the civil rights focus later on before he died? He said, "What is the what is the good of being able to go to a counter to get a burger if you can't afford the burger uh, at the counter?" Now, with the prison industrial complex, with I, I would say the civil rights leaders today, what good is it to be able to get a job even if you're black? If you can't now, can't get the job because you have an arrest record. So that's that's why that's the importance of this thing. And um, let's go to uh, uh, let's listen to what uh, Michelle Alexander, another sister, another, another mother, has to say about uh, different justice. I'm a law professor at Ohio State University and the author of the New Jim Crow: Mass Incarceration and the Age of Colorblindness. One of the things I find most fascinating in my conversations with white people about the drug war is their insistence that those who are doing time did the crime. So what's the problem? And then I'll say, well, did you ever drink underage? You know, when you were in high school, did you ever drink underage? Did you ever experiment with marijuana? And then very frequently you find people shifting their seat, getting uncomfortable. And this idea that of innocence, that other people are the criminals, but not them, is a thoroughly racialized idea. Um, and, you know, I often point out we're all criminals. We've all made mistakes in our lives. We've all done wrong. Anyone who's an adult has broken the law at some point in their lives. Um, but some of us have the privilege of making certain kinds of mistakes and going on to college or grad school and off to work and never having to check that box on employment applications, while others of us do not. 
In fact, you know, research shows that a white man with a criminal record is more likely to be hired than a black man without a criminal record. So even this system of mass incarceration, when white folks are ensnared by it, doesn't affect them in the same way. Um, when they're branded criminals and felons, they're not viewed as criminals and felons in the outside world. But that felon label, that criminal label, serves to define who black people are. And in fact, even if you haven't been branded a criminal or felon, you are treated as though there is something about you that is wrong by employers and in the world more broadly. Um, so part of what white privilege is to me is the freedom to make mistakes and go on. That is a privilege that poor folks of color in this country, particularly young people, don't have. Right, right. <laughs> they, that, that is the key. That is the key. That's why um, if you talk to the average white person, even black person, they don't understand what the, what the problem is with this mass incarceration thing. You know, if you, if you did the crime, um, you know, why not do the crime, do the time? But as Michelle Alexander indicated, we've, we've all done things. A lot of times people have gotten away with stuff. As far as drugs, I know for a fact there's a lot of people that are very successful now that, you know, I know they smoke marijuana. You know, they just weren't caught. You know, Barack Obama comes to mind. You know, he's the president of the United States, and he has admitted to smoking marijuana. He's just sitting in a car. There's the only difference between him and somebody that was getting, that, that, um, that uh, got caught doing it. And in a lot of cases, uh, with white folks, they'll probably let them go anyway. The kids, they'll let they, those kids go. They'll put your kid on the, on the sidewalk, cuff him, and give him a criminal record. And now he's got that record for doing something that a lot of kids have done, and they may never confess to it, and they may never get caught. But, um, you know, that is the hypocrisy of it. And, and, and again, I was at a function one time, and, and, and this guy was bragging about firing some people for smoking marijuana, some, some, some black kids for, for smoking marijuana. And, I, you know, I asked him about it, and he said that uh, it was based on some, some white folks that told him that they, they smelled marijuana through the, through the room. You know, they were set up in the hotel to do some kind of function. And he said some white folks told him that they, they uh, smelled marijuana through the rooms. Just based on that, he fired all three of them because the other two wouldn't tell who did it. So he, he fired all three of them. He was under prison kids that he was trying to help. And I, and I, was, I was like, um, you know, have you ever smoked marijuana? You know. And, you, and he didn't want to answer, but I know he did because by the way he looked at me. And then and I, I was thinking, you know, you know what? You probably did more harm than good to those kids, you know, by hiring them and firing them in that way without even giving them a fair chance. You know, at least if you what you could have done instead of just taking somebody's word they did it, investigate it thoroughly, counsel them, and tell them what's expected, and then the, you tell them the next time you're going to fire them. Don't just fire them based on what somebody said. And, and people deserve a second chance. You know, people, everybody deserves a second chance. So I was very upset by the fact that, you know, and in that room, everybody said, oh, but it's weed, but it's weed. You know, everybody was good all about it as if they never smoked it. And I told a guy that I went to school with, you know, when he was saying, well, why are you so hard on, you know, people when, when yeah, they got caught uh, smoking weed. And I told him, I said, man, truth be known, most people in that damn room have smoked weed. And I looked at him in the eyes and he knew mm -hmm. that he had did it too. So, <laughs> so he said, yeah, you're right. And he started laughing. But, um, but that's the thing. We're very hypocritical about you know, the prosecution of people for um, for doing drugs and all that stuff as adults, as middle-aged blacks especially. And middle-aged, middle, middle uh, age, middle-class black men especially are hypocritical and are very intolerant of that. But um, people do make mistakes, and that's a part of growing up, making mistakes. 
and you should be allowed a second chance. The problem with this war on drugs and this mass incarceration is that a lot of times our kids aren't given second chances. And uh, as Michelle Alexander indicated, the justice is not the same because uh, we're doing time on the outside, but uh, a white man with a criminal record has a better chance of getting a job than a black man without one. Okay? And that studies have shown that. So, this, uh, Zach? And, um, you know, your point, um, you know, brings to mind that, you know, a lot of times we're just as hard or um, if not harder on our own people than, you know, people who aren't us. And um, when it comes to mass incarceration um, in that Baltimore Sun article about um, basically the residual effects, you know, when one, um, you know, black father gets locked up um there's 82,000 children in Maryland with a parent locked up. And, you know, when you look at that number, it's staggering to me. Um, and it talks about how the uh, study where they got this information from the Casey Foundation, um, it talks about, you know, how that leads to loss of income and, and you know, psychological uh, issues with the children. So this is 82,000 people who are going to be living in our state. You know, they're going to grow up. And these are the people who are the future, um, you know, of our community and you know this is the uh type of situation that you know we're going to have to deal with so you can kind of see the cycle starting already so um you know when you talk about the person who um fired those kids he could have broken that cycle at that point and counseled those kids instead of just throwing them back out to the wolves okay let's say a caller okay uh let's go to charles on line one how's it going charles hey charles yeah. good afternoon hey sir how you doing all right. Uh, it seems like um, what you're talking about is making a case for legalization and for distribution um, centers. You know, just like we have all these Rite Aids and all these different pharmacies, they should, you know, have drug distribution centers just like they have liquor stores. Sure. And I think that would take a lot of the sting out of what we're dealing with. Charles, I mean, um... To your point, um, I, I can't say that I, I, I want to be like a liquor store, but I do believe that, and there, there have been countries that I've read about, Portugal being one of them, and Switzerland being another, where they took, you know, they got tired of the AIDS rates and, and all the stuff as far as um, the incarcerations and locking their people up. And what they did in Portugal, they legalized all the drugs. Nobody wants to go back to that system they had before, the mass incarceration. Nobody wants to do that. They have less crime. They have less addiction because addiction rates, contrary to what the average person would believe, and it's counterintuitive. The addiction rates actually, actually went down in those countries after they legalized drugs, believe it or not. And um, what they did in Switzerland is they, they, they established centers where you could get heroin and you can inject heroin. And they would wean you off of it, get you cleaned up and get you a job and try to, you know, get your, get you back on your feet, you know, back into the community. As opposed to, you know, coming down you with a ton of bricks, putting you in jail for $40,000 a year, et cetera. Right, but, uh, right. And, ahead, and that's where you would merge the legalization and the medicalization. Right, medicalization. Not, so that's what anybody I'm that's using would have that medical card. So they, so that medical card would be the same as a, as a driver's license. Right. And the know, fact, it, it will be a drug license. The biggest problem with that, Charles, is that most people believe in their mind, even though it's been proven to be mythical, that you could actually stop people from using drugs by having it illegal. Stupidest thing in the world, but most people believe it. They well, believe. <laughs> well, 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 it, it's, it's not a matter of stopping the people from using the drugs. It's stopping the people from the behavior. And it's not just stopping our behavior. It's stopping the national behavior. Absolutely. Because absolutely. The, the, the behavior that fuels the police and the police brutality. The, absolutely. The, the behavior that, that fosters the, the, the mass incarceration and, and, and the sloth, slothlessness when we just see people standing on corners. Mm hmm. 
you know, I mean, the, the freedom to actually, you know, do what you got to do because so many people spend so much energy chasing these drugs and not getting the right, the right, right. type Absolutely. of drug. So, so they, I mean, it, it's so, so much waste going on. Charles, you will not be able to convince people that it makes more sense that, that, that first of all, you're not going to stop drugs by law enforcement. You will never do that. It'll never happen. In this country, it's been people been convinced in other countries, but not in this country, because they, they think that if you just by you making something illegal, it's going to stop it. But what you do when you have that substance illegal is you create the problem. The very problem that you're trying to stop is what you create by having it on the black market. Well, well what you do is you revamp the tax system with the drug system and the money that is generated from the drug system will will fuel the tax system, which is bringing in way more money than all these red light cameras and um, ticket writing and all these illegal parkings and all that other stuff. I mean, we got to we got to take right, we got the money. And we got to take the profit motive out of these drugs. Otherwise, we're going to keep sacrificing our children to something where well, white. Well, that, well that's <laughs> when you bring the government, and, and when you when you bring in the regulation. Right, right, but that's and, not. And, and, that takes all the profit out of it. Yep. You know, it, it, it makes it just like alcohol. I mean, alcohol just to be used to be like drugs. People used to be standing around selling alcohol out of barrels and everything right. else. Right, it used to be illegal. They used to make it in bathtubs. Right, <laughs> but, but I'm just saying, you know, in front of regular stores, they would hide the bottles in barrels or behind the bushes or whatever, and just like they were selling heroin or cocaine or weed, they were selling alcohol. But when, <laughs> when they legalized it, they started putting it on trucks, they started getting factories, then, right, right. you know, they modernized it. I, I know so about I, that history. I know exactly about that history, but a lot of people don't, Charles. They they, they thought they could stop alcohol by making it illegal. It failed. The only only way they reduced the murders and the crimes from alcohol distribution and, and illegal alcohol sales was by making it legal, and they realized that. All they were doing was lining a bunch of people and making Al Capone rich. Right. Uh, and, and uh, see, we're going to go to the next caller. Everything is, is Charles, I'm going to let you close. I'm going to let you close, but we're going to go to the next caller. Go ahead. Go ahead, Charles. Okay. Everything is a circle. You know, the, the same way with they, they, they did with alcohol, they can do with all the other drugs, and you'll get the same result. Absolutely. Things will calm down. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to educate people to the fact that this has been tried before in history, and it's been tried in other countries, and it has failed every time. And we don't want to let go of that. We think if we make something illegal, we can stop people. That's okay. Let's go to the next call. Let's okay. call Charles. Call next week. Okay. Next up, we have Baba. How's it going, Baba? Yeah. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing all go right. Ahead, Baba. Uh, well, let me say something about uh, marijuana. I've yes, been sir. in Africa, in Nigeria, three times. Yes, sir. And Senegal, and Africans in Nigeria smoke a, a weed or marijuana. They call it in, in their particular language Igbo. So why that's, do we freak out about weed, weed uh, uh, Baba? Why do we freak out about weed, especially as middle class, uh, middle-aged black men? I, I don't know about people freaking out. <laughs> I'm just talking about uh, marijuana. Right, right. I'm not talking about freaking out. Why do we freak no, no, out? No, no, no. I mean, why do people get all upset when they find out somebody smoked marijuana? Like it's, well, uh, if, if, they get, if they get all upset about that, let me say this, my brother. Malcolm X uses a term. When you get upset about that, things like that, or people smoking marijuana, they just Negroes that's out of their mind. <laughs> I agree. All. I agree. That's, they, they just Negroes. That's what Malcolm X called these kind of people. That's out of their mind. I and agree, Africa, 100%. Um, they smoke a lot of marijuana. In, in the particular languages in their Nigeria, they call it Igbo. And they smoke, mar they smoke marijuana. I've been in Niger Nigeria three times, and they have. And it's nothing but a plant. 
uh, leaf. Right. Uh, plan. Absolutely. That's all it is. There ain't no daggone drug. Right. Like some of these people right over here. It's okay. <laughs> All right, Baba. I, I appreciate right. you calling. Thank Call you next so week, sir. Thank you for your comments. Okay. okay. Next up on the line, we have uh, Ernest. How's it going, Ernest? Hey, how you? Uh, I, I want to say uh, thank you for your program. It's, it's been real uh, uplifting. Um, well, we try to raise consciousness about what's going on in our community, Ernest, with, with uh, one of three black males being arrested. Nobody seems to notice. No, none of the Jesse Jacksons or none of the Al Sharptons, all those people. And I respect those people when they're civil rights. Uh, Credibility, but you know the street career with civil rights, but nobody seems to be uh, noticing the wholesale destruction of young black males. Well, well, you know, like I said, I I have been to Chicago for a minute. I, I I was there for a decade. I met Jesse Jackson. I, I um, matter of fact, I joined Red Mouse uh, organization. Right, right. I'm not taking I, no, I, anything away from those guys, but they. No, I mean, no, saying, this is a new I'm, thing going on here. The Black Lives right. Matter movement exactly. is noticing it, but they aren't. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, what I was going to say was that I, I come from the streets. I come from. I, I've been locked up before. Right. Um, I've been on drugs. I, I've, I've had methadone. I, uh, I'm 48 years old. Born, and raised here in Baltimore. Um, and um, you're not the only I, black person that's been through that. Uh, by the way. No, here's the thing, though. Now I have my own company. I right. For myself, I got absolutely. Drugs, I mean, I'm not Me too. posting, but I, I'm, I'm saying this to say that you know, in in our culture, we have different different lifestyles and backgrounds that. That um, we happen in. I mean, my, my dad, he was a he raised six kids, and and we, we my dad raised kids. seven. Go ahead. So so he was hard. <laughs> but I, I some honest to say that reason why I got in with with Reb, I, I, why I leaned to Reb Mal and Jesse Jackson and some of that some of that statements that they make. When we look at Freddie Gray, I mean, he didn't get a chance to see the judge. You know, most times when you Absolutely. go to prison, you know, I, I like to say, I've been there before. The first thing on your mind is getting bail. Not right. to be in in the hospital room or the the, the uh, ER uh, where, where you can't you know you can't breathe you you on a respirator, so and yet the police has not yet given an explanation of why this young man, <laughs> you know, um, he, his conditions in, in spite of whatever he may have done. You know what I mean? Right, right. And then by the way, uh, the the next guy that's coming up, Nero, his trial is going to be soon. Um, Officer Nero, he doesn't even want to be seen by a jury. He wants to be. Evaluated uh, by a judge, he wants to be judged by a judge, no jury. Yeah. So, well, listen, Tyrone, I want to say I appreciate you, man. I thank God for your life. Keep doing what you're doing. Respect. All right, sir. I thank you for calling in, and you call back next week. All right. Good comments. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Okay. So, yeah. Again, um, uh, Officer Nero is going to be on trial pretty soon, and then uh, he has he has um he he said he doesn't want to be tried by a jury. He wants to be tried by a judge, which is probably a good move because. Differently from black folks that have been, you know, harassed by the police. A lot of young, our young black folks in Baltimore have, and these urban communities have been harassed by the police. A lot of white, white folks actually worship the police. And they could never imagine a police officer lying or anything like that. Even though the average black person would know, know for sure they'll lie. Right. You know? <laughs> or they would actually experience it. You know? So, but but the average white person, they, they don't believe the police will lie, ever tell a lie. An officer would never bother you unless you was doing something. You know, you would never. They would never harass you. Why would they do that? Because they they wouldn't do it. Yeah, they're correct. They wouldn't do it to them, but they would do it to a young black male in the hood. And and uh, so let's go to uh, Hillary Clinton since we have the elections coming up, and uh, bring them to heel. Let's go to <laughs> the bring them to heel. And aggressively lobbied for. She gave a speech in '94 uh, defending uh, this piece of legislation. Now she had many different defenses to it, and some of it were. Good uh, 
parts of the bill, including community policing. And here in this clip, she's going to be talking about gangs, not just all kids, not just black kids. But when they talk about super predators, they almost always meant young African-American kids. And so here is Hillary Clinton talking about what should be done with them. Not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Bring them to heal. Very rarely was the term super predator ever used in reference to white kids. Perhaps sometimes in reference to the Columbine kids. But almost always when talking about black kids in inner cities who are in gangs. So I'm giving you the full context. It wasn't just that she was talking about super predators, and it wasn't just regular old uh, kids walking down the street. But was it racially used, that term? Yes, it most certainly was. It was used over and over by Republicans, adopted by the Clintons, to scare everybody. Oh, watch out for the super predators. They have no conscience. They have no empathy. We've got to bring them to heal. So is that quote accurate? Hell yes, it's accurate. That's why we went and got the video for you guys. So I remember when we first ran the story based on a story by Michelle Alexander, one of the leading African-American scholars in this country. People couldn't believe the quote. Well, here she is saying it. Okay. All right. He even gave props to Michelle Alexander. <laughs> but, um, you know, and she is one of the leading uh, scholars in, this United, in the United States, African-American scholars, because she is able to visualize something that's going on right under our noses. Nobody else can see it. It's almost like Godzilla is killing kids, black kids, and nobody can see it, you know. But you try to say, look, at Godzilla's over there. And they say, shut up. You're stupid. There's no Godzilla. And then you've seen this next black kid getting ate by the monster. Okay. And that's what, that's what mass incarceration is. You know, to, 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 to try to, I'm sorry, Zach. I was going to say, and that quote just shows, you know, how, you know, they don't look at us as humans. You know, when you talk about no conscience and no empathy, you might as well just say these these predator tigers, lions and, you know, in the right. jungle. Um, and so, you know, every time I hear that, it just it just really uh, disturbs me. And then um, when you look at, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Michael Wood. Uh, he was the Baltimore police officer who was a whistleblower and he started uh, tweeting out his experiences, um, you know, being a cop in the Baltimore system and he, uh, he said that he grew up in Bel Air, Maryland. He didn't have exposure to inner cities. When you work in policing, you're inundated early on with the us versus them mentality. It's ingrained in you that this is a war, and if someone isn't wearing a uniform, they're the enemy. It becomes a part of who you are, how you do the job. Right, right. Which is why, that point is exactly why that PG County police officer who was in plain clothes, who went to assist his fellow police officers, mm -hmm. was killed by police officers. Right. And then um, he goes Because he wasn't in uniform. He was the enemy. They saw him as the enemy. And then he goes on to say, when all you're doing is responding to calls, you're only seeing the people in these neighborhoods when there's conflict. But he was sitting in a van watching people just living their lives, and he started to see that these were just people. They weren't that different from me. They had to pay rent, see their kids off to school. The main difference is that a white kid growing up in my neighborhood, I was never going to get arrested for playing Absolutely. basketball in the street. Absolutely. And then he goes on and on. So definitely look up uh, Michael Wood, um, the former Baltimore police officer. And um, uh, Leroy, you got anything to add to that? And then we're going to go to uh, Hillary Clinton's newfound compassion uh, after your comments. Go ahead, Leroy. Yeah, so, um, so, in, so in Angela Davis's book, um, Are Prisons Obsolete? She kind of talks about this intersection, these intersections between, um, between racism and then the penal system. So 
Uh, she argues that since the penal system in America was made during the time of the American Revolution, um, then there's an issue with that because you had the system that was pretty much brought up. It, you know, it, it was it was formed in the midst of a very you know in the midst of of of, a, of an institution that was based around slavery, and so she's saying that um, you know that maybe we should question you know we should question that that concept because because she says that even after slavery was abolished, for example, you still had issues with black cold. And so uh, even after the 13th Amendment, slavery was, I mean, race was always uh, connected with criminality. Absolutely. And absolutely. this is something that, that persists on until this day. Okay. So now, good, excellent points. Excellent points. Now, so getting back to this thing uh, about how people are viewed differently, Let's go to Hillary Clinton's newfound compassion when she's dealing with people, white uh, West Virginians, and how she feels about those uh, perceived addicts. Now have five family friends who have lost their adult children to opioid overdose. We knew two of those young people, their 20s and early 30s, quite well. They had everything to live for. They had no intention of ending their lives. But they also did not know the risks. And particularly having a few beers, a couple glasses of wine, taking one of the opioids, they never woke up. So this is personal. The young man that I knew the best was actually interning for me at the State Department. He was in law school. He was one of the most incredibly likable, energetic young men that I knew. And we were so proud to have him in the intern program. And he was studying for a law exam one night. And a friend said, here, take this. And he did. So I want us to really zero in on this together. And this is one of the many issues that I want to be a good partner with all of you here in West Virginia, because as Joe said, you have the highest per capita overdose death rate in the country. <laughs> you can't keep losing people like this, predominantly but not completely young people, who have so much to look forward to, so many contributions to make. Okay, so you see how you were ready to cry and all this kind of stuff from Hillary Clinton. I didn't hear anything about any super predators and need to be brought to heel. Only thing I heard was about how special these young men were and how they would get to go to law school and all. Now, if you're a black person and you get, you're taking opioids or heroin, you're not going to be getting to go to law school. Somebody's going to jack you up and put you in jail for a possession charge sooner or later in these old police neighborhoods. And um, I'm not again. I'm not. I'm not excusing drug use. I'm not excusing crime. But the the, the things that are done to us aren't exactly uh, the same that are done to to whites. And if it was, something would definitely change because you're not going to have one of three whites being put in jail for for anything. All right. If that did happen, there would be an uproar. I'm so, sure uh, Freddie Gray was energetic and didn't plan on dying that day as well. That's right. <laughs> And uh, the other thing she said was that West Virginia has one of the highest per capita uh, overdose. That's the other thing, overdose rates. That's the other thing, other point she was making. The highest per capita in the nation of overdose rates for opioids. 
Now, I remember that uh, years ago they were talking about how Baltimore had one of the highest heroin rates in the country. I don't, I didn't hear any compassion uh, speeches from presidential uh, candidates or you know anybody you know that they even gave a damn. Personally, they just they just said was well, it in passing. Well, this study or that study showed you know this or that. So what we're going to do now is um, now that we explain the differences of how people are viewed in the criminal justice system. You know. Uh, drug addict in West Baltimore versus a drug addict who's interning with uh, the first lady and and uh, in law school and getting his life on and just having to take an opioid. And if you believe that he only took one opioid in his life, you're an idiot. You know, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the first time he had an opioid. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go to the commercial and then we'll, we'll uh, return. Did your air conditioning go bust this summer? Or do you need a new furnace for the coming winter? I think you better call Those other companies tried to reduce my family's bank account to zero. But when we called Tyrone, he became our hero. Hello, this is Tyrone, owner of BPPW, telling you don't be overcharged for your air conditioning and heating installations. BPPW can install a new furnace, heat pump, or air conditioning system at very reasonable rates. Don't wait until icicles are hanging off your nose this winter. Call BPPW now at 410-978-6889. We currently offer a 10-year warranty on parts and labor and a lifetime warranty on compressors for air conditioning and heat pump installations. You may qualify for a 30% tax rebate on some installations. So, before you go with the other guys, call Tyrone now at 410-978-6889. Okay, we're back with the Call Tyrone Show. Uh, to join in the conversation, you can dial 410-481-1010. Once again, that's 410-481-1010. Okay, now, uh, before we go to the calls, uh, um, what I wanted to share something with you. They're, they're um, talking about the Summer Jobs Program. And um, <laughs> and uh, they did a study as far as the Summer Jobs. First of all, they haven't met the goals yet. Last year, they were able to meet the goals because of the Freddie Gray riots. And they, a lot of nonprofits kicked in, and uh, apparently they don't have the money to employ everybody that wants to be employed, which uh, gives gives a lie to what people are saying about young people don't want to work because every time they have these summer job um, offers, they get sold out. You know, people, young people just you know can't wait to try to get a summer job, and they they never have enough. And uh, the goal should be you know everybody gets a job. You know, everybody that wants one gets a job. That's that was Barry Barry's goal. And that you know that's one of the reasons he was reelected because he was efficient and he made sure the people were taken care of. And um, they actually did a study uh, in Chicago of of a hundred youths and the people that actually got the summer jobs. Guess what? The rates of violent crime went down for that group. The um, you know and, and other pathologies that affect young people actually went down for the people that had the jobs. They did. They had a, a control group of people with the summer jobs, and they had a control group of people that had mentoring, and they had a control group of people that didn't have any of that. And, of course, the, the, as I already know, without even seeing a study on that, I knew the people with the jobs would do better. They did better than the people with the mentors. Because guess what, people? A summer job is a mentoring program. That's what I'm trying to get through to people. A summer job and a mentoring program is the same thing. Because those young people with responsible people, a lot of times they're family people, and they're going to try to lead them in the right direction as they supervise them in their work life. And um, so... Uh, summer jobs do more than just give kids uh, money. It gives them, you know, focus. It, it shows them 
uh, and how to work, how that you got to have a responsibility, that you got responsibility, that uh, you got to be somewhere on time, you got to be there every day, you got to be there ready to work, you have duties while you're there. Now, we don't want to spend money for that. We'd rather give $535 million to wealthy developers in the form of TIFs than to make sure our, our kids work. And, um, okay, I understand people feel that way, but, you know, hey, if that's the way you feel, it's too bad, but I think we should invest in our kids. And that's one of the main problems we have is we don't invest in our kids. And I think every kid, again, that wants some job should get one. And the, the biggest thing about this is that the, the, the older people, the older black men, they don't remember that they were given their first summer job by the um, city of Baltimore. They forget, convenient forget that and how beneficial it was to them. And so they can't see how important it is to a child of today to have a summer job for whatever reason. They'll say, oh, well, government should be giving you a job. Your father should have a, uh, you know, a business and, and put you to work. Now, you know, I was able to do that for my kid. Everybody can't do that, all right, until we get to a position where black people have enough businesses to employ their young. We need the government to step in, people, and we need to put these people, young people to work, give them something to do, you know, show them that you make money from work, not from uh, selling dope. And you can't sell dope if you're out here at the same time if you got a summer job, and when you get home, you're too tired. So, <laughs> in a lot of cases. So let's try to um, push to get our our youth employed. You know, they haven't. They're, they're thousands of people short of the goals, and they haven't met the goals. Let's go to the call. Okay. Next up on the line, we have Dave. How's it going, Dave? Hey, how's it going, guys? You hey, doing Dave. all right? Great, great, great show. Hey, um, I, I got a couple questions here. You know, the the mass incarceration is that like a master plan that? Uh, you know, white folks are sitting around, and they're like, you know what, we're going to come up with this plan to just start locking up. Of course not, Dave. That's, I know you're being facetious. Um, well, no, I'm no. not finished. Can I, oh, can go, I ahead, finish? go ahead. Finish. finish. Okay, because, you know, that's what <laughs> it sounds like, the way the conversation, which is not good to sound that way. Okay, okay. well, okay. Well, I'm not trying to... And, and what, I'm trying, what, I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is this. <clears throat> I, I think it's the, part racism, but there's a bigger part to me is that if you're not... Um, at a certain level economically as, as, as a race, then you're going to find that you're going to be treated differently in any type of system. Because the simple fact of the matter is, if you can't get a lawyer, if you don't understand the legal system, if you keep doing the same things or, or acting the same way in certain instances, then you're going to find that you're going to be arrested a lot more. And right, I agree with everything you just said. You don't have any economic. I agree with everything you just said, Dave. You're going to be, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. I believe I, I agree with everything you just said. However, you can't rule out the fact that that uh, the war on drugs is prosecuted more heavily in our communities than they are, you know, in other communities where there's drugs as well. You know, white people have been shown to not only use more drugs than black people to sell. They sell more drugs than black people. So right, I say, I would say this. Let me finish. I would say this. If you want to lock up people, lock up everybody there. Lock up the white people too. All right. Let's apply <laughs> the law I, equally to everybody. I'm not, not just calling to disagree. I'm agree. I'm just saying that you know the, the economic part of it and and, and it is a big part of it too. It Absolutely. Depends. When you go in a legal system, and we my, bear my relatives and my parents have worked in the prison system for a lot of years. Right. Right. Hard. I understand. And we bear we bear a lot of the poverty in this nation, uh, and it's a self perpetuating cycle because once you're um, uh, get this criminal record, you it's hard for you to rehabilitate because people don't want to hire you. So you're kind of stuck in a rut. It's like you're right. chasing your tail. Right, you're right, and and you know at my company we have actually hired people with records. Well, know? that's so, good, but everybody's not like that. Right, and, and we and I know how hard it is, but and so have I. You know, 
at, at the same time, you know, you know we got to understand until we start controlling stuff. And I know you've heard this. I agree. Time, I agree. We're, we're we're going to be that. I agree. That, that All of business. That, I agree that with that. Taking advantage of in the legal system. That's the way it is. I agree, and we have more political clout as well because these right. people are politically powerless that they're, right. they're, they're executing war on drugs on. Right, but the last thing I'm going to say is though, you know, but in Baltimore City and a lot of the urban areas, the political structure is African American. So, right, right, but yeah, but they're sellouts. Part. So what's the problem? Why does it keep happening? Because, because they're getting paid. They're sellouts, Dave. They're sellouts. That's what the problem is. Okay, let's go to. Um, oh, all right, guys. <laughs> that's. I mean, it is what it is. I'm just gonna call it like it is. Let's go that's to. The same um, question I have. Yeah, let's 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 go Later. to. Um, who goes to jail? Who goes to jail in the in the drug war? Democrats began competing with Republicans. To prove they could be even tougher. Violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. It's what the research shows. But the drug war, not by accident, has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color. Even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites, or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who's a drug dealer. You know, if you picture a drug dealer in your mind, you're probably picturing some black kid standing street corner with his pants sagging. Plenty of drug dealing happens in the hood, but it happens everywhere else in America as well. A white kid living in rural Kansas doesn't drive to the hood to get his marijuana or his meth or his cocaine. No. He gets it most likely from someone of his own race down the road. In fact, where significant differences in the survey data appear, it frequently suggests that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than black youth. But that's not what you would guess by taking a peek inside our nation's prisons and jails, which are overflowing with black and brown drug offenders. In some states, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race, African-American. Okay. So as you can see, we're going to go to the callers. But as you can see, this war is prosecuted in our neighborhoods, okay? And I would say, yeah, you should be punished for your crimes. I'm not... You know, I don't believe you should be committing crimes. But if you're going to start locking up people, lock up every damn body. Then you're going to try to find a solution to the problem instead of just picking on poor, you know, un uh, underserved communities of color. Uh, next caller. Okay, next up on the line, we have Big Nell. How's it going, Big Nell? Yes, ma'am. Hey, what's up, buddy? How y'all doing? How's it going? <laughs> all right, sir. How you doing? I've been all right, man. How you been? All right, Big Nell. How's, what's going I, on, man? I just want got? to let that other caller know that they could spend all that time to focus on the real big wheelers that's bringing the drugs in our community. It wouldn't be so that. biased. They're not so, going to do that. Yeah, so <laughs> that other caller, that when he was talking, he, he don't know what he's talking about. Until they fight the real war on getting the big-time drug dealers off the street, white, whatever, whatever color they are. They're is. not black. <laughs> they need to. They need to focus on the the heavy users instead of the little the little the right little the street guy. level. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thanks, man. All right, sir. Thank, Thank you, you so for calling. Call next week. Yeah, next caller. 
Okay, next up we have Byron. How's it going, Byron? Hey, hey Byron. Hey, how y'all doing? They're not going to focus on the people really um, uh, dealing with the drugs because it'll be police and politicians locked up. <laughs> they're not going to be locking people up. You know, Good they're, point, Byron. They're not going to uh, put any, any bills in to lock themselves up. But I want to say something to the brother said a summer job. A summer job is definitely needed. It helped me stay out of trouble. It helped me stay out of trouble, Byron. I remember Byron, that. Some, how come these idiotic, job, Byron, how come these idiotic uh, politicians we have don't understand that they had a summer job when they were kids and how it benefited them. Even Stephanie Rollins Blake says she had a summer job and it helped her. So why can't we get summer jobs for our kids? Putting flowers in the parking garage oh, okay. and millions of dollars racing some That's stupid important. cars around the harbor. <laughs> right. I want to say this. A summer job is not just that don't just help the kid. It's an economic incentive for the whole family. How about that? A single parent, in the neighborhood. You got three, and you got three or four kids and three of them have summer jobs. Bam. That ease up money on you to help pay bills, maybe put a few dollars away. That? When your kids can buy their own school clothes and they ain't got to be asking you, give me, give me, give me all the time. And it's also something for them to put on their resume. Right. And go for another job. Absolutely. I mean, Byron, Byron, slow down. Slow down, man. I got a question uh, for you. Now, as far as the money, what you said about single parent, mentoring programs are good. But can a right. mentoring program put food on the table and, and exactly. put money in anybody's pocket? That's why That's why that, 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 that report showed that the people that were in the jobs did better than the people that were mentored. Because a summer job is a mentoring program. It's the same right. thing, but with money. Go ahead, I'm you, sorry. And you, another thing you said, you said that if they're working, they can't sell drugs. Another thing, if, they, if, if they're working, it, 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 it's hard, it's easy to lock them up. You know, they don't want them at work, but they want them on the corner. <laughs> because we, got this, this, we got this privatization of jails. We got stand-your-ground uh, laws that nobody talks about anymore. I mean... You know, you got three strikes, you, out. you got people, you know what the problem is? A lot of black people, they don't know nothing past their, their, their current environment, where they're at. You know, it's, it's a big world we live in, and we don't know nothing what's going on. We don't do any you research. People, black people that's being locked up from 13 to 40 years for simply a, a dime bag of weed. This is going on in America. Yep. It's serious. And we have no and idea about that. Thinking it's a joke. Institutional racism is alive and very well. And we can't fight it unless we understand about it and unless we're educated about it, unless we do our research. We have no idea what's going on. And you're correct about everything you just said. Who have devastated us, sent our jobs away, devastated our neighborhoods. When you got a neighborhood where a lot of these neighborhoods... You said Clintons. The Clintons. You said the Clintons. a neighborhood where you have basically many men, beautiful homes. Byron. And people, huh? Byron, you talking about the Clintons? Yes. That's black people's hero. That's black people's heroes. They, they, they have sent the jobs away. They have, they have, but black people love the Clintons. Laws, which, 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 after three strikes to open the door for Sandra Ground. Black for, people uh, love the Clintons, uh, Byron. Uh, uh, no okay, I, I got... Byron, Byron, hold on a minute. I want you to listen to this. I was just hold on the phone for a second. I want you to listen to this. Byron, no, no, Byron. Byron, I'm not going to hang up on you. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Just listen to this a minute. Okay, let's go ahead and, and play uh, What the Clintons Did for Black Folk. Democrats began competing with Republicans to prove they could be even tougher on them than their Republican counterparts. And so it was President Bill Clinton who escalated the drug war far beyond what his Republican predecessors even dreamed possible 
and it was President Clinton that championed laws denying federal financial aid to drug offenders for college. It was President Clinton who championed laws banning people with criminal convictions from access to public housing so that people wouldn't have housing upon release from prison. It was the Clinton administration that championed laws denying even food stamps under federal law to people who were once caught with drugs. To a large extent, the basic architecture of this new caste system was championed by a Democratic administration desperate to win back the so-called white swing voters, the folks who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the civil rights movement. Okay, that was Michelle Alexander. Byron, are you still there? That was Michelle Alexander, author of the new Jim Crow. Go ahead. Some of the same laws and bills that Bill Clinton sponsored was the same laws that Bill Clinton sponsored. If you look at what what people what Clinton voted for, it's for the same things that the Republicans voted for. So why are we why are we running behind Hillary Clinton? Byron. Why are we running why are we running behind Hillary Clinton so big? We she can't win without us. Because somebody like Bernie Sanders wants to make a drastic change, at least get started on it, and Hillary Clinton just wanna tweak an already effed up system. Why don't we know that? Why don't we know that? Why don't we understand that? Hillary Clinton goes around the black churches. I wanna ask her, how many white churches you been to? None. <laughs> she's not going to go back to black churches till election time, but you know what they say? If you get the preacher hooked, and he thinks he's, he's, he's a super Important. Star, they got, yeah. You got, you got somebody famous coming to his church. Right, he a mega, he got a mega church. Whatever my pastor say, I'm going to do it. My pastor say jump off the cliff. <laughs> so and we got the young people wanting, 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 wanting Sanders, and you got the uh, mothers and grandfathers wanting... Uh, um, they love them some Clintons, don't they? Finally, <laughs> finally, we got our kids standing up, and we won't even support them. Hell no. What is wrong with us? They stood up because we wouldn't. That's why they stood up. We wouldn't stand up for well, them. No, we it's failed. It's black kids, it's Jewish kids, it's, it's, it's Oriental kids, it's Mexicans. Most of the young people want Sanders, and it's their world because a lot of us, we done lived and did what we had to do. The we ain't do enough. Will not stand we we got our affirmative people. action, phony baloney jobs, and we don't give a damn about oh, those young people. We're not going to talk about Bill Clinton's environmental record where, he's, where the, the food is being poisoned, and uh, and Hillary Clinton want to do fracking all around the world and poison all the water. You know, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> Hillary Clinton is the worst thing. All right, Bob, wrap it up, man. And I'm going to say this real quick. You you wrap it up. About, well, that was Bill Clinton. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton hang with the same goons. Have a good one. All right, sir. Thanks for calling. Call next week, sir. Yeah, call next week, sir. Thank you. Good comments. Now, as y'all can tell, Byron is not enamored with the Clintons. And I can't, for the sake of me, I can't understand why we're so crazy about the Clintons. Hillary Clinton cannot win the White House without black people. And we just love, you know, Hillary Clinton. I don't know why. She hasn't, as far as I'm concerned, she hasn't earned that degree of respect from, or her husband from black people. If you look at the, the facts, and as far as all the jobs, during the period of that mass incarceration that her husband initiated, uh, the black males were the only group of people that actually had less jobs during that period because we due to mainly to mass incarceration. We were the only group that fell in employment. And we don't remember that because we don't do any research. And, um, you know, as long as we, as, as I said before, as long as we have our phony baloney affirmative action jobs that we forgot that other people fought for us to get, then we really don't give a damn about anybody else. 
I think also, too, um, when you look at headlines in uh, newspaper articles, they're not tailored towards black people. So they might say that the uh, economy has improved such and such under such and such politician. But then when you look at the rate for the black community, it's Which often, is usually around 50 percent, according to Bernie Sanders. Who right. knows? <laughs> right. So, you know, the national um, unemployment might be, you know, 8 percent or, or something 7%, like that. Or 7 percent. Yeah. But, um, you know, the black, black unemployment males. Is, is so much higher. Um, people, people, <laughs> people, again. The unemployment rate, and you look this up, Google it. The unemployment rate, for, please Google this, for Sandtown Winchester is 51.8%, according to the Justice Policy Institute. All right? And Maryland is around 7%. and I mean, Maryland is like 5%, 5.2%, something like that. And then Baltimore is like 7%. But for black people, ages 16 to 64, it's 51.8%. How come nobody notices that except Bernie Sanders, who was able to say it when he went to visit? Sandtown, Winchester, someplace Hillary Clinton never went. She went to Fort Covington when she came to Baltimore. He went to Sandtown, Winchester, and we still love the Clintons. Give me a break. I get a headache every time I think about it. It's been a uh, great recession for a long time, uh, way before <laughs> 2008. <laughs> yeah. Way before 2008 it's been a in the black for community. Us. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's been a depression for us because 51.8% people is, is tw- twice the unemployment rate of the Great Depression. And a lot of that unemployment is due to people with these criminal records. You know, they can't get jobs because they have they, when they as soon as they check that box that they've been arrested or whatever, they you know they're just ruled out. So when you get people um, coming to Baltimore Armor, um, I was Under Armour, talking about poor covering all these jobs, they already know that the black people that apply for those jobs will be disqualified based on you know them being ex offenders and stuff like that. So they can promise you all the jobs they want and just simply say we didn't have enough qualified people. Yeah, we offered them jobs, just enough of them weren't qualified. So we gotta get we gotta get smart about what's going on out here, and that way we can do better to support our community, and improve life for our children and for our fu- have a better future in Baltimore and places like it. Okay, now we're about to close the show. Uh, uh, Leroy, you have anything? Yeah. So recently, uh, as of yesterday, the Baltimore Sun reported that the that the inner harbor, well, at least the swimmer, the swimmable part of the inner harbor, it failed. Um, it's swimmable grade yet again uh, for several years uh, in a row with an F. Um, and this goes against uh, the, the the harbor's put the city's push to make the inner harbor swimmable and fishable by the year I would not swim in the inner harbor. However, I did jump yeah. in the inner harbor. My, my brother fell in there when we were little kids, but I jumped in there to get him out of there. But other than that, to save somebody's life, I would not <laughs> I would not be swimming in the inner harbor. Okay, that, yeah, well, that concludes our show. I'm sorry. Uh, but good oh, well, comments. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Leroy. Go ahead quickly. My bad. Well, well, quickly in closing, just when it comes to, to all these different projects going on in the harbor, all these water, all this waterfront gentrification, just think of the impact that it may have on the environment. Okay. All right. So this concludes another informative episode of the Call Tyrone Show. And join us next week, same time, same channel, two o'clock on WOLB for another informative discussion. And I enjoyed all the comments, and please call again. Thank you for your time.